You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Okay, so this one is almost certainly just for the uh, hardcore fans, the fan base. You'll, you'll know if you're part of that. Uh, probably by whether the, uh, you've bothered downloading this or not. But um, I just wanted to give you a bit of uh, behind-the-scenes info on my recent trip to Los Angeles to appear on Conan, which was a, a you know, it was a real dream-come-true kind of an experience. Um, and I'm just going to, rather than... Okay, so a lot of people listen to the show primarily for the interviews, and uh, I know a lot of you hang about and listen to the postamble as well, but uh, this is quite an involved postamble, so I'm making it its own thing. So if people aren't interested in my trip and how I rehearsed and some of the decisions I made regarding the material I used and all the rest of it, um, then uh, they can just skip this one entirely, right? So I am now going to treat you, if you've bothered uh, staying on uh, to listen to this, I'm going to treat you as if you are my best buddy and you want to hear all about it, right? Rather than continue to go, is this interesting? I think this is interesting. And uh, the download figures will reveal how many of you agreed. So... Oh, actually, the one thing the download figures won't show is the amount of people who are not interested but continued listening out of spite. <laughs> I left on uh, a Friday morning. I think, did I go overnight on Friday? Did I leave? I think I left on a Friday morning. And, and because of the time difference, I had an enormous uh, flight, which meant that when I did my first warm-up set at the comedy store in LA, the Belly Room, um, I had been awake for about 28 hours and I got there and, of course, no one knew me at the gig, so they very kindly agreed to, to, to put me on so I could warm up for my five-minute set. Um, but when I got there, it was like between half 10 and half 12. So, of course, I ended up going on at uh, 12.20 because I didn't know anyone there and everyone was sort of popping in and going, oh, can I just budge? I'm going to zip off and do this one in that exciting LA way that we all know when we have American comics on the show, people like to do five and six gigs a night. So what that meant was by the time I went on, I was absolutely pie-eyed and exhausted and I did not have enough of my aerials with me to realise at that point that my opening line didn't make contextual sense. I had prepped the set the set had been okayed, the transcript had been okayed, um, but there was something in the telling of the opening gag that just didn't make sense. I'll talk a little bit more about what that gag was in a second and what I replaced it with. And this is as good a point as any to, to say that you can make the decision to go to the Team Coco website and watch my set. You'll probably, if you if you press pause on this, if you can be asked, 
and go and watch it now, it'll probably make more sense, the stuff I'm going to talk about, or equally you can reward yourself with it later or never watch it. Um, but it's on the Team Coco web channel, which is uh, Conan O'Brien's own kind of uh, uh, YouTube organisation. Um, and if you don't know what I'm talking about at all, I appeared recently on Conan in the States, and it was very exciting, and I feel like it's one of the first bits of TV that I am truly, truly happy with. I've done little bits and bobs here and there, and this really felt like... The, I felt like I was the right person at the right time doing the right stuff in the right way. And all of those things came together in a very satisfying way, as I shall uh, tell you about over the next, good God, I hope it's no more than 20 minutes. Anyway, uh, the opening line, the set broadly, i had been booked. JP, who's the, the booker for the Exxon Conan, had come and seen me in Edinburgh, I think three years ago. And it had taken me that long to get the, the working visa together and spend outrageous amounts of money, literally thousands on uh, attorneys in order to sort out the work visa. So now I'm, I'm good to go in the States for three years, which is very exciting. So um, uh, JP had come along and seen the set. And the opening line of the set, I think... I may be remembering this the other way around, but either way, when I got to uh, LA the other week, um, I opened with the following line. I kind of, I tried to tailor it to America and it's a line that I've used at the beginning of, um, I can't even remember which show it was at the beginning of, but it's become a sort of mainstay of my club set where the line is, um, it's great to be here. And then I talk about the the distance of where I've traveled or what have you. And then uh, I say that, uh, I've lived in the city. It's London uh, for the last 15 years, but I was planning to say in the city. I was going to say I'm from the UK. I've lived in the city for the last 15 years and uh, I made the mistake of falling in love with a woman who lived in the countryside. We had a long distance relationship for six years. Then she got tactically pregnant. Now I live in the countryside, right? And I like that line because it sort of sets me up as put upon. One of the things I struggle with as a comic internally, if not externally, uh, is that I feel like I worry that the audience don't know what my reason is to be on stage, you know? Like, I, I look and sound like a nice boy. <laughs> Thanks, Angela De Castro, clown teacher in a course sometime around 2000. Um, you know, I always think it kind of benefits comics if you look weird somehow, if you look like you're a victim of life in some respect. Um, and I just don't feel like I look like a victim. And it's really, you know, what I'm like, overanalyzing everything. It's always got into my head the fact that I, I worry that I look like I'm sort of too happy and successful to be on a comedy stage. That's probably becoming less of an issue now, um, now that everyone seems to be kind of gaming comedy and coming into it. Like, there's loads of really hot comedians now, so I don't know how that logic applies to them. But it is ironic that uh, around about the time I'm starting to go to seed and turn increasingly grey, that's now an option. Anyway... The point is, I like the line because it sets me up as kind of resentful. There's a line I've been saying in in Primer last year at the the very top when I come on and, well, I won't spoil that in case you see it, but it's basically what I'm trying to affect is a kind of, not even affect, what I'm trying to tap into is a sort of disdain for the audience. I think I've spent a lot of my life trying to get on with everyone, trying to please everyone, so much so that that's a kind of, it's become symbiotic with my actual personality. And what I'm trying to do these days more and more is tap into that bit of me, which actually can't really be fucked to be there. And I think that's kind of yielding good comedy. It's truer. And it also has, um, it has a sort of, uh, just a different kind of tone. It's, it's, it plays nicely counter to the warmth and smiliness with which I can't help relating to an audience. So actually to sort of put a little bit, as Henry Rollins says, a little bit of urine with the sugar. 
Um, so I like that. It sets me up as resentful. It sets me up as kind of put upon, but in a fairly pathetic way. Like I'm, I'm not the victim of circumstances. I've sort of chosen to be the victim. You know, there's a lot of nuance I imagine that probably most people don't even hear in 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 that line. But it's been really working for me for the last year or so as an opener to a club set. So I thought, right, let's burn it on Conan. It's a very strong opener. It didn't work in LA. It got nothing. At the comedy store, certainly, and very little at the Hollywood Improv, the next four gigs I did the following night. And what I found was that the set I was doing was strong enough that I would win them round by the time I got onto the Victorian babysitter stuff, which at that point was in the middle of that four and a half minute set. Um, that stuff would always win them round and I'd always end well, but I felt like the first two minutes was an uphill struggle. It sounds like a tiny amount of time, but that's 50% of the set. So that was the first time that I got an inkling of, oh, crikey, I mean, it's late and I'm tired and it's a small room and they're tired and drunk and stoned because everyone is stoned in America now. Um, So uh, I thought that just didn't have the explosive thing I I wanted it to. I only realised later, that was the Friday night, and having struggled a few times on the, the Saturday as well, I only realised on the Sunday that sen- the sentence doesn't make sense contextually in America. They know I'm British and there isn't really any distance in Britain that an American would resent having to travel. Someone told me only, another comic who was on that that uh, night, whose name escapes me for the moment, but they are a listener, so hello to you, as well as being an excellent comic. They did very well that night. And they pointed out in an Instagram message to me that I only saw a couple of days ago, uh, because we all know how great I am at social media, that um, the equivalent would be the woods. If I'd have said the woods, I live in the city and now I live in the woods then that would make enough of a distance. Countryside doesn't really work as a, as a concept over there. I guess they know what the English countryside is. But they just... Or, or someone else, um, my friend Holly, said that uh, an equivalent would be I've grown up in New York or I've lived in New York and now I have to live in some... She, she suggested St. Louis, Missouri, because that would give a sense of, oh, God, I've been torn away in the same way. But obviously I couldn't use those places as examples because they know I'm British and because, um, and, you know, it, it wouldn't be true. But also it's, um, it, it just, uh, like there was no way, I, there was no, it wasn't translatable. So God, I did these five gigs with variations on, here's my opening line, Christ, that didn't work, hold it together, try and get them back. Okay, you've got them back. What a shame, that was a waste of a warm-up set. So on the Saturday, I was like, well, I'm not going to beat myself up about it. Let's go and do these other ones. And each one of them was, I did one for uh, Alex Edelman, uh, a former guest and brilliant stand-up. And um, I had a lot of fun hanging out with Alex. And he and Matt Kirshen and Holly uh, Gabrielson all gave me some very useful feedback on the set generally. But I still was struggling. I, I, I did Alex's, um, he had a, a thing, the, the Comedy Lab, which is the small room in the improv, the Hollywood improv. Um and uh, it's a small room and it's intimate and it feels like it should be really nice and smoky and whiskey stained. But the bar occupies kind of half the room and sort of juts into where the crowd are. So I think it was it was slightly tougher room than I was expecting. I really enjoyed doing the set at Alex's kind of lab show, He's sort of uh, Alex Edelman and friends. And um, and there were some great acts on there as well. But uh, again, I kind of came off. He said nice stuff. A couple of other people said nice stuff about it, but I felt like, oh, I kind of, I got away with it rather than really it working. You know, there's, you always try, I think of this all the time, that bit in the, in the Frank Skinner in his first autobiography when he talks about the problem with comedy is it's either brilliant or it's shit. And if it isn't brilliant, it's shit. Now, I know we all have to try and have better mental health than that. We have to have, try and have a more useful approach than that. But there's, it's absolutely true. You know when you've spanked it and no amount of people going, hey, that was really great, will convince you 
when you know what it feels like when it's actually really great. So I then did the big room in the improv shortly afterwards. And again, I sort of followed an American who's very at home. And I was kind of like out of town and a bit wobbly and a bit, I mean, thank God for warm up sets, because I would have hated to have, have gone on and done the actual recording with that sort of sense of trepidation that I walked on the first one in the big room. It went, it went kind of fine. It was sort of fine. But you know, the weirdest thing is just, just doing a five minute set for me on tour now. I'm doing two hours. So five takes me five to say hello, but that's not how it works in context in the States. So you've got to do what works there. Um, I've sort of caught myself kind of making excuses there. Ultimately, I haven't had like so many American comics and we hear this on the podcast. They, they really hone and hone and hone their five minutes of, you know, their turn up and do bang. That's my five. Every minute of it is a killer. Every moment of it is hilariously funny and totally expresses my personality. That's when you see a good one. And I just started to, after a couple more gigs at the improv that night, I started to feel like, oh God, I'm just, maybe I'm not funny in America. On Sunday, long conversation with my wife. Not long, but um, it probably felt long for her because I was pretty miserable about it. I was staying at my friend Jeremy's house in Santa Monica. Um, Thanks once again to him for uh, the luxury luxury in which which I became... uh, accustomed in a way that was not going to last. But um, uh, I was sort of sat in their spare room speaking to my wife, thinking, oh, you know, saying to her, I just, I don't think I'm funny in America. It's not, this is going to be so much work and time and money, fucking loads of money has gone into coming out here. Yeah, God, something about it just isn't working. And then I went for a long, long walk around Santa Monica and made the decision to just tweak that opening line. And instead, I used an opening line, which I, which I remember now was on the original transcript three years ago when I, when I submitted it. Um, and you'll remember somewhere I will now dig out and repost the, uh, the video of, uh, that I tried to make. Do you remember this? I tried to make a video to go on Conan. It was at a, an ad hoc charity night at Monkey Barrel three years ago. Kitson was comparing and uh, he uh, basically got wind of what I was trying to do and accused me of ripping off the charity night in order to do it. Uh, and as a result, I walked on, couldn't get a word out and the whole thing very quickly devolved into me crowd surfing the audience as they all chanted Conan. Um, I think I put that out on a mailing list at one point, but I might put it back on the Facebook group if you're interested. Um I, uh, what was my point? Oh yes. So I changed it to the opening line, which I ended up using at the actual taping, which is, uh, I'm excited to be here. I come from a small town in the UK. You won't have heard of, I had a very boring childhood. I remember one time when I was a kid, no, nothing. And I love that joke because it feels very me. It's, it's kind of rooted in truth and it kind of makes a virtue of a negative in a way that all good comedy can. And I suppose, um, uh, I, what I felt was like, it's, it's, I don't, I don't open with it in clubs because in a regular, in a potentially rowdy club environment, it's got far too long a pause in it, which I consider a risk. Someone could equally, someone could easily shout something out, fill that gap. And it's a high risk opener to do something with silence in it because if someone fucks it up, that's your first line dead. And you know, it's particularly in a short set, that's, you haven't got time to risk it. But I thought they're a TV audience, they're Conan's TV audience, they'll be well behaved. And, and a big shout out to uh, the warm-up act, Gary Cannon, who is uh, uh, Conan's current regular warm-up, um, because he, ju- he didn't just do crowd work, he did jokes. So he switched them on to a jokes uh, way of thinking, which is enormously important. Um, so I, I, I'd known he was going to be there and I, I hoped that's what he would do. 
So I, I thought I'm going to risk it on that joke because A, I love the joke and I'm proud of it. B, it's a proper joke joke and it will hopefully switch their, the, the audience's minds into thinking, oh, there's going to be jokes, we better pay attention. And B, it's just a good surprise. It's like a really satisfying, we're going in one direction, bang, there's a left hook, actually it's something else. So a left hook or a, a rug pull, let's more, uh, more peaceably call it. It's a nice rug pull of a joke. So uh, I did that on the Sunday. I tweaked it. I walked around and kind of went through the set just a million ways till Christmas, just kind of going, God, I'm, uh, have I done enough work? Have I done not enough work? I suppose I often, this is just a personality thing, I often panic that I'm not prepped enough. And that panic then makes me over-prepare and then I get all up in my head about it. I suppose what I'm most terrified of doing especially on a TV gig, it's just losing my place. I'm a bit, my head's a bit Swiss cheese. You know, it's a bit, I just, mid-conversation, and I try to edit them out when I'm, uh, when I'm talking to you, but, uh, but I do frequently lose my thread. And f- probably five, between five and ten times in my life, I've been on stage and just completely dried. And I've always, you know, if, it, if it's not a high-stakes thing, you can just look at them and go, I don't know what comes next. Arguably, I could have done that in the gig. Worst case, they can edit it. But you don't want to do that. So I've just tried to over-prepare in order to solve a problem that is almost certainly not going to happen. So I put too much energy and too much focus on that. But I, I felt at least like I had done enough work on the set. On the Monday... I, oh, sorry, sorry. On the, on the Sunday, JP came to see the set. I was at Flappers in Burbank, which remains a sort of... I mean, it's not a great name for a club. I suppose you get there and you go, oh, it's 1920s flappers. That's what they mean. But it sort of sounds like it's a club for people who are somehow flappy. It sounds a bit jonglersy. It was easily my favourite room of, of this trip. And they did the larger room, the Sklar brothers, who there's an episode with the Sklars coming out soon. Oh, my God, they're great. Um, identical twins. And they do stuff that isn't about being twins. They just both do stand up at the same time on stage. And sometimes they disagree with each other. And then suddenly they'll say the same word at the same time, the same punchline. It's brilliant. Cracking episode with them coming out soon. And you can also hear them on an episode of This American Life on the 13th of January, in which is going to have an explosive uh, secret finale. Where I don't want to say too much about it, but we refer to it in our episode and... Um, They've embargoed the actual end of this incredibly fascinating and kind of kind of head-shaking story, which goes out on This American Life on the 13th of Jan. So hook up with that. Anyway, this is all tangential. The point is, this class very kindly, uh, Randy and Jay, uh, let me add myself to the bill of people opening for them. So I did that. And then the joy of working with someone like JP, he's so professional. He's not a director, but he just gently and humbly offers little tweaks and, you know, breaths here and that, and maybe put that bit the other way around in a way that I haven't really worked with someone like that before. I've only ever had one director years ago and I was in the middle of a breakdown, so it wasn't the best (laughs) sort of situation. But to have someone so uh, gentle and deft going, just if you put that bit there, then it kind of changes the shape of the whole set. Everything he said, I was like, oh God, you're absolutely right. And then the Sklars, funnily enough, gave me that tag about Downton Abbey that you either will have seen or may see on, on the set. Um, so they love tagging jokes. We talk about that in the, in, in the episode forthcoming. So that one went great. And then as luck would have it, I then was able to sidestep into the next room, the little room at Flappers and run the set again. And it was again, I mean, that one went so great. And then the little room one was ridiculous. I had to tell someone off for laughing too much in a sort of friendly way. It was properly like I bounced out of there going, oh, I am funny in America. This is going to be fine. 
the Monday, I went along with Amy Halverska, a brilliant comic, Welsh comic, who's now based in uh, San Francisco. Um, very funny comic and writer and uh, excellent friend. And also tough woman, power woman, who is good at kind of the sort of like, oh, come off it, get over yourself, come out, that kind of person. And uh, and so we went along together to see the taping of Conan on the Monday. I was performing on the Tuesday. It's a late night show, but they record at 4.30 in the afternoon, which I hadn't realised, but of course that makes sense. If you are mega successful multi-millionaire host X of any late night show, just record it during the day and then you haven't got to stay up all night stressing out about it. So we went along and I'm so glad we did because it recorded on the Warner Brothers, in the Warner Brothers lot in Burbank, which is literally a movie lot. So... Why I hadn't realised what a lot is, is uh, it's a lot of warehouses just next door to each other with little um, golf carts ferrying people in between. And each of them has a plaque outside of all of the movies and TV shows that have been shot in that particular warehouse. And I was very pleased to walk past the one that said uh, Constantine, because I enjoyed that movie, despite its many flaws. I, I've watched it several times. Um, so I was like, oh, I'm, I'm near the Constantine lot. That's exciting. And people are having tours and what have you. So it is a really nervy kind of, there's a lot of security, metal detectors and stuff going in. And uh, me and Amy went in together. And uh, and I remember thinking on the Monday, God, I'm glad we're doing this now so that tomorrow on the Tuesday when I record, I can come back to somewhere that I already know the thing rather than have that extra underlying. Basically, I'm a mess anxiety wise. And it was a high stakes thing. And anything I could do to make myself feel calmer about it, I somehow managed to calmly do. As Charlie Baker pointed out in a lovely text, very funny comic Charlie Baker, uh, when the thing went out, he sent me a WhatsApp message pointing out that my hair had been cut, but not too recently. And I was like, that's, you get me, man. (laughs) You know, I tried to plan everything such that uh, nothing would be there to trip me up mentally, right? It doesn't matter what your hair looks like. What matters is a Joke maybe doesn't go as well as you wanted and live in the moment, part of you remembers you didn't do your hair and you think, oh God, maybe it was my hair and then put your toast. So my my solution to that, rather than just fucking getting over myself, <laughs> is to try and make sure everything is set up perfectly. As my old friend Torsten, a fantastic German juggler I went to circus school with a million years ago, uh, he used to say, when you go on TV, uh, you must have a, a good haircut because then even if you drop all of your props at least you know I have a good haircut. So I did. So I prepped. I went along, we watched the show on the Monday, we watched the recording of it, which flashes past in, in a heartbeat. It's a half hour show. Bang, suddenly it's, it's on, it's hilarious, it's over. And I had a bit of a sort of suss around backstage. And then I didn't gig on the Monday night because I could have gone out and found somewhere, but I just thought, look, I've done seven. I'm just going to rest. I don't want to overcook it. Yeah, check out Jimmy Comedy here. Yeah, I don't want to overcook the set. On the Tuesday, I went back to the studios with Amy once again uh, and my friend Sharon Mahoney, uh, who you will know from, uh, and this bit's not safe for work, uh, her show at Edinburgh last year, Thundercunt. Uh, Sharon is a former, oh, still a current street performer as well and a, and a stand-up of many years' experience and is very, very funny and again a very powerful lady who is who has a sort of... Um, not, I wouldn't say abrasive at all. Amy's the one for kind of abrasive love. But um, uh, Sharon has a... She's just a really... She's just tough. And she won't mind me telling you that she's always reminded me of my grandmother, who, as we know from previous shows, used to be absolutely tough as old boots. Sharon is tough. Amy is tough. And I had both of my power lady friends with me, uh, giving me moral support, who also actually had the the nous to, to kind of 
be there when I wanted to go, hey, so everything's okay, right? And also retreat subtly when I just needed to get in the zone. So a huge thanks to both of them. Um, so then the uh, I was backstage and I knew, and this was satisfying, I had a couple of like, you know, mistakes. This is just experience, basically. I knew from previous TV things, A, don't drink too much water. Your mouth will go dry because you're nervous. You'll want to drink loads of water. And then just when you're about to go on, you'll suddenly realise you need a wee worse than anything any other time in your life. If you ever catch me on Alan Davies as yet untitled, uh, you will notice that uh, certainly for the first half of that show, I've got a sort of strange faraway look in my eye because I basically spent the first 45 minutes of that recording being more desperate for a wee than I can remember being in my entire life. So I didn't drink too much water. I chewed gum to keep saliva in my mouth rather than drinking endless water. I knew from experience, B, that nothing would happen for ages. I wouldn't be needed. Everyone would ignore me. And then suddenly I'd be on and it was all going to happen. And apparently that's what the army's like. It's, you know, hurry up and wait. Like nothing happens and then something happens. So um, <laughs> why do I know that? Because I've read every single Jack Reacher novel. Um, I, I was kind of prepped. I was sort of, I, I suppose mentally, I had a kind of mental tracksuit on. I was just kind of, just bobbing on my heels, taking advantage of the glorious hospitality, but not eating any food with skins or that could get stuck in my throat or anything with nuts. And it just, I just did the stupid little things. I just felt good about it. Before the recording, before the audience had come in, I'd sort of walked the stage and, um, uh, and had a sense of how it looked and all the, all the rest of it. And I'd um, enjoyed some really friendly uh, sergeant-at-arms style joshing from the uh, floor manager and the assistant floor manager and all the other people. They all sort of treat you great, but in a kind of a, like, stand there, don't fuck it up kind of, kind of way, you know, to get a laugh out of you, which uh, I really appreciated. And there is something, I've done a lot of TV warm-up in my life. Um, still do uh, a little bit, very little specific bits here and there. Um, but I've done a lot of standing on the set, looking out over the cameras and recognising that this is like a gig, but not a gig, and they're too far away. And some of them are close and you've got to play to both and those sorts of things. And I've done enough of that to think, oh, this, I hope this is useful in some way when I then do an actual TV spot. And it was. So part of that use was actually just just not being psyched out by the fact of the backstage at a TV show, because that can be very unnerving when you're first there and there's electricians and people kind of doing stuff and budging you out the way and you sort of feel like oh god everyone here knows each other this is like an incredibly coherent unit i'm sure they are there they've done hundreds and thousands of shows together um but it, you can feel a bit outside it all so i was prepped for that and then the time came i got a great bit of i got jp said one thing to me which i won't share with you but he just said exactly the thing you want to hear uh before you go out and do a bit of important stand-up and I won't share that with you. Ask me in person because I feel, you know, it's a, it's a kind of, it's a, I get the impression it's a thing he says and I don't want to spoil the surprise for anyone lucky enough to have a similarly fascinating experience. So he said the thing to me and I was like, yeah, right, okay. And I remembered before going on to just enjoy it because the, I mean, God, it cost enough money. No, that's not my point. To enjoy it just because that's the one thing, isn't it? You can't fake that. And if you can walk on and enjoy yourself, it just radiates from you in that sort of sixth sense way. They can kind of, they can just smell that you're enjoying yourself. Um, potential autobiography title. Um, and I just had a great gig. The first gig that, the first gag that um, 
the one about the small town, just went really well. And when they responded to that, there was another kind of element to that joke, which I hadn't even thought about. When that got a laugh, I went, oh, you're smart. You like jokes. Let's do this. I'm not bigging up the, the structure of that joke. It's not the most creative or original joke in the world. But if I've known, I've, I've, I've done that joke and had audiences not laugh at it particularly. And, I, and they've always been stupid or drunk or whatever, you know. So um, that is one of those lines that if someone does, you know, you've got your little bits and bobs in your set. You go, if I do that one, then, um, then I'll, you know, probably only a few people will laugh at that, but it's for me, that sort of thing. It's a similar, it's a similar track to that. I did a favourite joke of mine and it went woof. And I went, oh, there we go. Great. Um, settled back into it. Did the show. It was great. I hope you enjoy it. Go and see it. It's on the Team Coco website. I've posted it in the ComCom Facebook group as well. Oh, and the, the, that's the other thing. I, I've referred to this in the, in the previous episode, but I'll just say this again. Thank you from the bottom of my heart to all of you who got in touch and said supportive things. And um, I don't want to, I never wanted to give the impression that I desperately need your, I crave your support. I mean, I'm a comic. Let's assume I crave your support. I, without feeling desperate about it at all, feeling really powerful about it, it just gave me such a little secret smile in my heart to have so many of you get in touch via a, a wide variety of social media texts in some cases and the Facebook messages and stuff to just say, go for it. And there were, I know how many of you are new comics or want to be comic, well, I hate that phrase, new comics or aspiring comics um, or pro comics. And even like, I know loads of you aren't, but I really got a sense of people got in touch with me with lots of messages that said, you're doing this for us. We're all behind you. And, you know, we get what this means to you and go for it. And that, I just felt like, oh man, you know, like I, that's one of those moments when, like, I love that you listen to this show and I love that, that you're still as engaged with it as you are. And, and that I, like the, I feel like our relationship, yours and my relationship has sort of matured over the years I've been doing this. Please never listen back to episode one, but since then it's completely different. And if you are someone who got in touch or thought about it or watched it or commented on it on YouTube or whatever, um, it, I just want you to know how much that does mean to me. I really appreciated it. And in a time of kind of like, I didn't feel super tense. There were moments of tension, but I suppose I just felt relaxed. I felt like I was the right guy for the job. So I always think of that. It's like um, some quote from Red Dwarf about Norman Lovett, the Queeg episode uh, when he plays Holly and he says, uh, so you all agree I'm the right dude for the job. I felt like the right dude for the job. And so I wasn't as stressed as I might have been, as I might have been in the past. I felt uh, good and calm and ready and I did it and I knocked it out of the park and I'm very pleased about it. So check out the amazing... They've just started. Laurie Kilmartin. Oh, that was a moment. Laurie Kilmartin, who um, does... I think she does a podcast with Jackie Cation. She's one of the writers on Conan. Um, she popped her head in before the show, but when I was just in the dressing room, to say, oh, hi, Stu, just wanted to meet you. Big fan of the podcast. Well, fucking thanks a lot, Laurie Kilmartin, because that just gave me... That was like, oh, that's Stu pulls from his himself the sword of self-belief. It was so kind of her to do that, and I really appreciated it. It really felt me sort of settle me into the building. I forgot to mention that earlier on. Um, so that was that. What a thing. What a lovely thing. It's like doing the... You know, I did the that tour support gig, a couple of gigs at Wembley Arena, and you come off and you just go, I've got that forever now. That's in me. What a great thing. 
And the lovely thing about this is it's in me, but it's also available online. So uh, please pile on and, uh, and, and check it out. I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed doing it. And thanks for listening to this. I, I will look at the, uh, the secret iTunes analytics that let me know the uh, drop-off curve. <laughs> I will try and work out how many of you stayed with me to the end. My hope is uh, that although this is uh, in, in immensely self-involving, hey, it's not as bad as one idea I had, which was to do a sort of picture-in-picture a YouTube video where I sort of did a director's commentary of the set and told the listener or the viewer about the decisions I'd made throughout the thing. I kind of, I like the idea of that, but I just, I mean, do you know what I might do? Why don't I do a private one that only you lot can access? Let's do that because the idea of someone stumbling upon it and just being like, who the fuck does this guy think he is, is anathema to me. <laughs> so maybe I will get around to doing that and I'll do it as a little private thing uh maybe no promises anyway thanks for listening i enjoyed it loads talking about it has made me feel really up and really buzzy i'm quite i don't live in london anymore and i'm i don't see comics in the way that i used to i don't get to hang out backstage after gigs i'm always on the road as soon as i've finished and um so it's been very nice to talk about it again and get that little buzzy kind of feeling about it and thank you to all all the acts and friends and and everyone who who got in touch um at the time or afterwards Great days. Speak to you soon. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.